Look, it's great to be chatting with you. And um, I want to say first that uh, when you talk about neoliberalism, the tendency is to think, oh, my God, this is a really serious economic theory and it must have like a ton of, you know, legitimacy behind it and so on. Actually, the historical um, entry of neoliberalism into our lives is much more prosaic. It's much more dirty, you know, uh, than, oh, my God, this is some, you know, Nobel Prize winner in economics and so on. No, it's not that. What happened was that about five or six decades ago, the very rich um, decided that, look, hey, listen, we are rich. We have a lot of extra money. We're not going to tolerate high taxes anymore. We're not going to tolerate too much government regulation of our personal lives and of our business activity, commercial activity. So what we're going to do is we're going to finance political um, you know, uh, institutions, political parties and so on. And we're going to make sure that there's an enormous new agenda that uh, puts the idea that tax cuts are needed. Now, when we talk about tax cuts, ordinary people think, oh, wow, I'm getting a tax cut. No, <laughs> your tax cut is nothing. They got a tax holiday. And what you saw then is they sort of saturation bombed society with this idea that tax cuts are good, the state should be small and so on. And that attack by the very rich, you know, in a sense, that attack which allowed them to move money to tax havens, to move money to offshore financial instruments and so on, that basically starved society of the necessary tax dollars that a humane kind of capitalism might be, you know, might have enabled. And because societies were starved uh, of cash, because governments were starved of cash, they couldn't provide social goods like public health systems. And right. so they began to cut. That's what we call austerity. When they began to cut public health systems and a pandemic shows up, guess what? I mean, you just don't have the capacity to deal with a pandemic. Private uh, hospitals and private medicine are not like public health. You don't have public health workers going door to door in a country like the United States or the United Kingdom. You know, how many residents of the U.S. and the U.K. have seen even one government, public health, or any health worker knock on their door, test them, take their temperature, nothing. It just is not happening. Country right. like China or country like Cuba, where there's a commitment to public health, you know, in Cuba, tens of thousands of students got trained in the beginning of the pandemic, and they literally went door to door to every one of the 11 million Cubans to their homes, tested people, took down information, who's got disabilities, who's got comorbidities. They built an enormous apparatus of knowledge and they were able to minimize COVID infections. Look at the UK, look at the United States, more people dead from COVID than in World War II. I mean, that's a consequence of this neoliberal attack on society by the very rich. Well, and then now you have people in the States hoarding tests. So even if you can go buy tests, it's not even available. That was, you know, that was the situation for, for me recently is I was lucky over the holidays that I was able to find two home tests to take, but they're not available around here. You know, like it, it's just gone. People are <laughs> hoarding them and then selling them for, you know, $30, $40 more than what CBS would charge. Uh, that that to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of feels like neoliberalism uh, on the ground floor, that, that, that this, this phenomenon has kind of encouraged people to do this sort of stuff, is hoard things and then sell it for a higher price. Would that be kind of an accurate sent, uh, statement to make? Well, look, if the very rich say, I'm not going to pay taxes, I'm taking my money now, it's accumulated, it's roughly $37 trillion dollars. I'm going to put all this in a tax haven. We're not going to bother with the concept of society. In fact, we'll disparage the concept of society. If this is the kind of ideas percolating into educational institutions, into young people's minds, right. you know, be out an entrepreneur, make money, make money. Greed is good, as the great Gordon Gecko, the philosopher, says in Oliver Stone's attempted takedown of Wall Street. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> people took the Gordon Gecko character and made him into like a living saint. When <laughs> that was supposed to be a takedown. 
Greed is good. You were supposed to be revulsed by that. No, people said, wow, that's so cool. Greed is good. <laughs> you know, greed is horrible. But that idea percolates down and you're like, oh, wow, look, I can make money. I'm going to go buy all the toilet paper in the grocery store. I'm going to set up a little stand and sell it right outside or the test or things that people need out of desperation. So rather than create the feeling of community in these advanced capitalist countries, you've just created a dog eat dog mentality. Now, dog eat dog, you know, actually dogs don't eat dogs, Chris. That's the main <laughs> thing to keep in mind. It's people cannibalizing each other's dreams. That's what neoliberalism has done. It's a form of cannibalization of the imagination, you know, um, and that's, that's just horrible. I mean, to hoard tests, what <laughs> so it's so crazy <laughs> like it's so it's so crazy to me that that you know we even even at the beginning of this pandemic people were saying oh it might be four to six weeks that we'll have to be in lockdown and people are are going out and clearing toilet paper and milk off the shelves it's like it's it's four to six weeks i think you can make do with with like a 12 pack you know like how much? How how often are you planning to go to the bathroom in these four to six? I weeks? mean, in that sense, thank God I'm Asian. Okay, uh, I didn't even need the toilet paper, so I'm just doing fine, and I'm not saying anything, you know, out of turn. That's 1.4 billion people in at least South Asia. Make it two billion people, perhaps, uh, maybe more, that are actually quite right. ecological about these matters. You know, if we want to talk about um, climate change. What's wrong with you people in the West? You know, take a take a bloody note from people in South Asia and stop using toilet paper. And what's the deal with forget toilet paper? What's the deal with that white sort of paper that hangs in kitchens? You know, people keep oh, carrying the paper, towels. paper towel. What yeah. the hell is that? Just use a towel, recycle, wash it again. You know, I don't half the time I don't understand what people are up to, frankly. Um, you built a civilization. It, none of this makes sense to me. Refrigerators don't make sense to me. You know, you're in a in a Chicago or in I don't know where in some freezing place in Finland, and you have a refrigerator inside <laughs> your house, a freezer actually, even more dumb. Just keep an icebox outside. Why not do that? But no, we've got used right. to convenience. You know, yeah. One of the things that neoliberalism also uh, puts forward is this idea of convenient. You know, what's convenient is good. What's inconvenient is bad, and, but convenient for whom? How many people can live like that? You know, right. how many people can live with freezers and refrigerators and, you know, a second fridge and, you know, I don't know, God knows what all people have, but convenience is the death of the planet. And that's the other side of neoliberalism. Yeah. I it, and, and it's, it's interesting because now there's a charge for convenience, right? That's, that's what they sell you, but now they're making you pay for that convenience uh, and you can see it in concert tickets. That's what I deal with as as a comedian is if if I'm going to a, a, a ticketing company, I don't want them to put on a convenience fee for people that are coming to, to see me perform because what's the point? I mean, isn't isn't convenience supposed to benefit people without without some sort of financial gain? Isn't that the point of convenience? But it just seems like neoliberalism takes these concepts and these ideas and and turns them into a product just i mean even even look at the way advertising is done in the united states right is like colin kaepernick was an an icon for a while uh you know a social justice icon and and then he gets taken over by nike who takes his story to sell shoes you know so it's it just seems like neoliberalism runs out of things to sell so they go to these abstract concepts and products and then they try to sell you your own identity <laughs> in the form of shoes or or jackets or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> yeah, and then small things that are um, you know meaningful in your life. Um, you know, the commute, for instance. Um, you know, you commute to work. Firstly, it's barbaric that everybody has to be in the individual car, and there's just in many many countries uh, around the world. It's it's not just in. The United States is like, I would say, one of the scoff laws of public transport, but it's not the only place. And what I remember uh, experiencing in San Diego was the creation of private lanes on the public freeway 
where you could pay a special toll to just bypass all the cars this is not a a, a lane for those who are carpooling this is not a normal toll barrier this is a special private toll road on the public road i mean you know the airlines who privatize the private and then they they ask you to pay a fee to get an aisle seat you know um i mean i just bought a ticket and then you have a seat map that i can go to and then when i try to book an aisle seat you say no now you have to pay 25 dollars extra <laughs> what i mean you know it's it's and and by the way this is airlines right who right. don't start paying the air, air uh, personnel the the stewards and the pilots they don't start getting paid until the door is closed of the plane and the um and the 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 brake is off that's when yeah. the aerostar starts to get her salary or his salary it's when the, so when they're saying hello get welcome on the flight they are not being paid the airline is making you pay a premium to get an aisle seat but they are too cheap to pay their employees who are working you know when right. they say welcome on board let me help you put your bag up there they're not getting paid that's their donation that's neoliberalism it's the screwing of the worker at the same time as they squeeze from you the most money for the thing that you've already bought i already bought a damn seat <laughs> you know now you're telling me if you want that seat you have to pay extra <laughs> meanwhile this person who's putting somebody's bag into the thing is not getting paid that's actually the aircraft is is a great way to understand neoliberal it's a great screw you're getting yeah. screwed one way or the other so i mean so if they're doing this sort of stuff why you know you you hear these billionaires they keep talking about well i'm operating my company at a loss uh, you know like uh the uh, pro publica just did a great expose on on like how billionaires really evade taxes the one thing that i that I, as i read these articles I, i questioned was well well why are we buying into this if if they're claiming that they're operating at a company at at a loss you know like the LA Clippers lost 700 million dollars you know because uh they're they're looking at the whole cost of the of owning a team for 20 30 years so so they're operating this company at a loss so so why is there this kind of culture that surrounds fetishizing billionaires as these high high success you know highly successful people but when whenever it comes to taxation they come down and say well i'm operating my business at a loss i'm actually not making any money <laughs> you know it just doesn't add it just doesn't add up well i mean it's it's actually pretty simple what they do is and and this is the crookedness of it what they'll do is they'll I, i'm a big billionaire i'm going to buy you know mohan enterprises this is a company you you came up with some brilliant idea and i'm going to buy your company i have you know 600 million dollars sitting in a bank somewhere you're selling the company at 20 million i'm not going to 20 million is nothing for my 600 right. i can just write a check in cash you know and buy it no i go to a bank i borrow money from the bank not only to buy your thing at valuation 20 million but i might take some debt on i might take 10 million in debt in order to have money to say start advertising for your product so it's a 20 million company already an inflated price because you wanted to sell it at an inflated price so you can walk away and buy an island in the caribbean <laughs> and a private plane and do whatever the hell you want there right well you're all set you sold for 20 million i went to a bank borrowed 30 million to buy your already over inflated company the numbers don't make sense you know because i have to pay <laughs> the bank debt i'm going to run it at a loss quote unquote but it's a good value company i'm making some money i have not risked a damn dollar in that because my 600 million is still sitting in some offshore account somewhere money making money making money but i'm entering into business using often either commercial bank money or private uh, or public money i get some government loan to buy this company saying you know it's a big thing we're going to arms manufacturing get tons of public money if i <laughs> bought an arms manufacturer you know and it's run at a loss but the reason it's run at a loss is because you inflated the asking price and then zipped off to the cayman islands or wherever aruba 
Right. And I took extra debt, larded debt onto that company. And thirdly, I'm paying myself a big salary off the company's books and, you know, vice presidents and so on. Obviously, it's running at a loss. These <laughs> people don't care about running companies at a profit, making things lean. That's the reason they're getting their asses kicked by the Chinese and others. And because yeah. they don't yeah. like getting their asses kicked by the Chinese, they would like to use the U.S. military to go and bomb the hell out of China so that they can remain the masters of the universe. You want to know what's going on with the U.S. and China? That's what's to. going on. You've got <laughs> yeah. a capitalist class that is basically lazy, that has not been functioning as a you know entrepreneurial class as such, which is borrowing public money, which is larding their companies with way too much debt, which is taking out too much in profit and not reinvesting it in their own firms. These are not bloody pioneers of every, every anything. <laughs> These are the characters from, you know, Wally lying in a lilo, sucking on a little drink, haven't got off their lilo in years, you know, have robots doing everything. That's what these people are like, you know, and it's interesting. There are two or three of them that are pretty energetic, you know, in, including somebody I really dislike, Elon Musk, pretty energetic people. But the bulk of them, it's as I described it, you know, they don't risk their own money. They lard their companies with debt and then they take way too much out as profit and don't put enough in as investment. And that's why they are really finding it difficult to compete on the world stage. They would like to talk about free enterprise. Actually, they are basically pigs eating off the trough. Oh, but Vijay, I mean, we're, we're told that they work so hard to get their billions. <laughs> Anybody can be a billionaire if you just work really hard. <laughs> that's Anybody. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Anybody. <laughs> you um, know, that's, yeah. that's the constant narrative that's that's told to, to everybody <laughs> under under capitalism and neoliberalism. Like <laughs> this, this false, uh, this, this false dream that we're all uh, that we're all chasing. You brought up China, and I, I uh, that this is I, I think this is kind of brilliant. Is they started going after their billionaires and uh, having them put money back into their common prosperity program to help uh, working class Chinese Chinese people. What what was kind of the 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 way they went about doing something like that? And do you think that's that that model can be applied? To a country like the United States, or or even even an up and coming capitalist democracy like India, no, it cannot be. And okay. here's here's the reason why. You know, China uh, was in the middle of a war that starts that it's a hundred year war. It starts in the early eighteen hundreds when the British come in there and impose opium on the Chinese. Uh, they take the tea. They take as much wealth out there. They really, you know, they took. They fought two wars, the two opium wars, seized Hong Kong, seized parts of concessions in Shanghai and so on. Portuguese already had colonies in Macau, uh, humiliated the Chinese. A hundred years, by the way, it goes all the way till the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Um, right. In 1949, when the communists come to power, they pledged themselves. They say, now China is standing up. That's what Mao Zedong's line was. Chinese are standing up now. Well, that means they've been bent in humiliation for a century. They're standing up. But it was an incredibly poor country. A couple of commitments they made which are important to bear in mind. One was that the well-being of people must be taken care of. So yeah. there were lots of problems in the first 25 years in China. I mean, you know, uh, the uh, Great Leap Forward, you know, the idea that anybody can create industry in their backyard that really was a flop of an idea. The Cultural Revolution was a very serious error, in my opinion. You know, it hurt a lot of people's lives. It was just not something that was uh, at all, uh, you know, good in retrospect. On the other hand, they improved people's living conditions. So by the 1970s, people in China were eating better. There was more education. There was less health problems. Compare India and China, Chris, it's incredible. India in the 1970s was a disaster in, in these yeah. metrics compared to China. It's at that point that they pivoted and did a reform in 78. They allowed foreign capital to come in. They tried to breed this class of capitalists, you know, to build the productive forces in China and so on. There was a lot of success in that. They also brought in science and technology, which allowed them to leapfrog over the West. Um, but the core commitment to social justice remained. 
in the Chinese Communist Party and in China in general, there's been a major debate over the course of the last 30 years about whether this get-rich kind of schemes is something that's good for the country or not. When Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, the debate turned to the fact that, look, it's gone too far. These Chinese billionaires are way too powerful. Um, they are leeching the society and so on. So it was a fight, let's say, within the context of a country which has a commitment to socialism. Now, it's not that everything is perfect in China, a huge amount of problems. Right. But this government is trying to rein in the billionaires, you know, put them in their place, talk about common prosperity, whatever. The United States, India and so on, <clears throat> privileging is not socialism, it's private property. So when private property is a religion, it's very difficult to rein in anybody. You, you can't see the Indian government, which is hand in glove with the Adanis and the Ambanis. These are the big billionaires. Yeah. You can't see the Indian government go to Mukesh Ambani and say, sorry, pal, you know, we're going <laughs> to appropriate things from you. No, the primary commitment is to Mr. Gautam Adani or to Mukesh Ambani and so on. It's not to your ordinary farmer. That's why the farmers were on, you know, massive protest. Um, it's not there. So when a country's commitment is not to the broad a mass of the people, it's hard to do these things. In China, it's true in the last 25, 30 years. There was way too much power in um, the coastal cities and way too much power around a handful of companies and their executives. But because there's a kind of inherent commitment to social justice through the revolution, um, the government of Xi Jinping was able to pull in the other direction, you know, without with some. OK, let's just be clear with a lot of internal dissent. I mean, people are like, we don't want this. We don't mind having, you know, Jack Ma be this big tycoon walking like, you know, the Colossus astride <laughs> the Asian continent and so on. There were people who said that. There are 90 million members in the Communist Party of China. Okay, 90 million members. That's a third of roughly a third, quarter to a third of the population of the United States. 90 million members. You can imagine the different opinions they have. So for somebody like Xi Jinping, you know, he, he represents a kind of left of center view. He went there. You can't expect Biden. Biden can't even pass an infrastructure bill. <laughs> what are you talking about constraining the billionaires? You know, forget it. <laughs> well, it, it every time I look at that that sort of information of the, of them saying like, oh, we we tax the billionaires, we put a cap on them. At the end of the day, they even even when they put into the common prosperity program, they they're still billionaires. <laughs> you know, like to 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 me, whenever I look at that, and and people say, "Oh, if you get, you know, if we if we uh, uh, execute socialism in America, you'll the, nobody will be rich, everybody will be, you know, poor and destitute." And then you look at a country like China, which does have a commitment to socialism and is going in that direction, still has billionaires even after they they reign in their billionaires. So it's it's almost you know it 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 objectively proves these people wrong that you know that that uh try to write these hit pieces about socialism <laughs> by by basically saying you're not going to be rich in in socialism <laughs> you know you know my general view is that um you know they I, people will you're exactly right people will say oh my god you want to abolish first class you know <laughs> and everybody has to be in second class i i my view is the opposite i want to abolish second class I want everybody to be in first class. Dude, yeah. I want everybody to have top quality services. That's that's the point of socialism. It's not that right, right. services. That's not our dream. We want good services. I mean, if you've been to a country like China or, you know, you've been to some of these countries, like public transport is excellent. You know, uh, it's really good. Like, I would like to see New York City, a city I really love. I would like to see the New York City subway network get a huge amount of investment so that you know the trains are better and they are swifter and they're not like just not you don't feel happy in the new york city subway trains <laughs> especially trains that go to the more non-white boroughs you know right. um, like if you're riding the train uh, up manhattan you know those lines the trains are older they are in less good shape they come less often the trains that go to working class areas really badly produced. You yeah. know, it's the same in in LA, in Los Angeles. The train system 
you know feeds the suburbs the bus system is in bad shape until the bus riders union showed up and led these protests and brought natural gas buses and it was working class people who fought to change that well let's have good services for everybody you know not just right. so i say abolish second class let's only have first class find money <laughs> and when you said you know they take money from billionaires and they're still billionaires because these people are sitting on way too much cash <laughs> and you know and and that cash needs to be made productive you see i'm at this stage in history we are at a stage where it's not it's not let's be a little bit clear it's not going to be easy to expropriate everybody okay it's not going to happen like that but let's demand that the rich put their money into productive uses and not into financial instruments part of this tendency of neoliberalism is this very odd kind of iceberg where rather than the tip of the iceberg above the water the bulk of the iceberg is sitting above the water the productive base is very shallow a lot of the money is being transacted through financial um, instruments through various kind of derivatives buying things that don't even exist you know pieces of paper and so on and those the rate of return on investment can be quite high for for billionaires also some of them are perfectly content just keeping their money in cash you know they're not even investing in anything productive or in stock markets they're just holding cash that is just unseemly you know you've made money from my labor now reinvest to make my you know society and civilization interesting i don't even mean like give me a cash handout invest in culture invest in arts you know have like music in the park and i don't mean by donations you know i mean produce academies of music and things that the old plutocrats did 100 years ago the old carnegies and all that that's a start man i'm yeah <laughs> not totalism but it's a lot better than this shit where these people buy islands in the caribbean they disappear there they have their own culture they bring their own musicians to perform for 25 people and there is no attempt to produce things in the world you know they they sort of throw slop at us and then they create their own this is this is the just the the decades before the french revolution is how they live you know they're at an island called versailles and let me tell you if we go and check and i haven't checked i bet you that there's some island in the caribbean owned by some plutocrat whose name is actually versailles <laughs> writing private concerts for <laughs> them and a couple of their friends that's their saturday night <laughs> and and the aircraft will be called something like horse and buggy you know i mean <laughs> you know i i remember watching that film with nicole kidman and and uh, and that fellow who's a scientologist um, from top oh, tom gun tom cruise tom cruise you know yeah. where they had this ball with the mass and the weird, there was a pretty weird film but you know that fantasy of the ancient regime you know the fantasy of of monarchies and things it's there man i mean we got a taste of it when the jeffrey epstein story broke yeah you know the kinds of ways in which people live you know yes at the base of it is terrible sexual violence against young women and and so on and girls you know terrible sexual violence but then also it's the prince of england and its musicians and its lawyers like alan dershowitz and its former presidents and they fly off to these private islands and you know they essentially there's that just makes my head want to explode okay yeah. <laughs> agreed yeah these are these are our role models is what they keep calling them <laughs> uh yeah it's it's absurd cuz the you know i i i just saw this headline and i had to roll my eyes at it that they're considering building a a hotel in space and like i'm looking outside my window and i'm like well my road needs to be fixed though we don't need a hotel in space we need we need a road here <laughs> like it just it just seems like every time you look at neoliberalism and and the people that champion these sort of economic models they're always looking they're always looking to build these distractions but not really take care of the core problem and then it becomes that distraction is is a key part of of maintaining <clears throat> neoliberalism across the globe it, using propaganda and that which is where the media comes into play which is why people like you are so important 
because uh, you can't trust An- Anderson Cooper to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, uh, so it, 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 all of these kind of things funnel right back into keeping neoliberalism going. And I think that's part of the reason why I was so excited when the, the farmer strike started, which started, I think, on Thanksgiving Day uh, in 2020 was when it when it started and nobody covered it. It was it was like the People's Dispatch left voice. And then like three comedians were talking about it, myself included, which is just to me embarrassing to large media companies like The Guardian like CNN, you know, like even Times of India, it's it's embarrassing when you don't cover a 250 million person strike, right? Like, and and we saw the impacts of that. And and just for folks that might not know about the the Indian farmer strike, uh, would you be able to kind of t- talk about what happened and uh, how it ended? Because it ended kind of great. <laughs> Firstly, look, it, it, you're right. I mean, we should we should be embarrassed for these media houses. Um, you know, we, we should. We shouldn't be cynical about it. It is actually grotesque that um, that every year for the last 20 years, hundreds of millions of Indian workers have gone on strike, an annual general strike, and not one of these periodicals covers it. I mean, it's it's shocking. You know, it's like you can't get cynical about this. It's shocking that they don't. So um, in 1991, India so-called liberalized the economy, opened up the economy. And part of that opening up was through the International Monetary Fund and the U.S. Treasury Department. A lot of pressure to end subsidies in agriculture and to, you know, bring commercial activity more into rural areas. Um, And I think this idea of ending subsidies in agriculture is at the core of this, because what you saw was from 1991, Till about five or six years ago, you saw about 300,000 Indian farmers commit suicide. Um, And many of them were committing suicide by drinking pesticide, by drinking fertilizer and so on. Um, And it's actually telling that they were doing this because what happened was the moment the government started to cut the subsidy regime for agriculture, agriculture cannot be done without subsidies. You know, it's a very complicated business. If you just allow water prices to go up and electricity prices and you don't regulate fertilizer prices and you don't regulate, you know, this production of, of, of pesticides and so on. If you don't provide assistance, farmers cannot grow and then make a living. You know, hunger among farmers globally is at a very high level, globally, very high level. So what happens is that farmers found that the buying price of of seeds was high, they had to start buying seeds, pesticides, fertilizer. These input prices were so high. Then the electricity prices had got high in some places. Because of all that, they just couldn't make a living. They were going deeper and deeper into debt. This was there in the United States in the 1980s. I covered some of those cases in Iowa, where yeah. there were also farmer suicides, you know. Um, and those places, small farmers sold, you know, Willie Nelson created a thing called farm aid to try to raise yeah. money for debt. And lots of farmers went into meth farming. They had meth labs on their farms to try to get some income and so on. Very tragic situation in the United States. So this predates what happened in India, but it's the same process, not so far away. Right. I wrote an article called Iowa is not so far away from Telangana. This was in the year 2000, um, you know, just when within 10 years of Indian liberalization. Anyway, uh, at, in in India, this farmer attack on farming was very severe. As I said, 300,000 farmers, at least uh, that we know of, committed suicide. This is my colleague, P. Sainath. He put the number together. Okay, so since uh, the Modi government came in, this is the right-wing government of Narendra Modi came in in 2013 and 14. Since the government came in uh, and has been governing since then, um, there have been a series of rolling farmer protests in Maharashtra, in Rajasthan. These are states in Western and Northern India. Um, when we saw these protests take place, and they were quite considerable, farm suicide numbers dropped. That means farmers, it seems, were given some hope by the fact of struggle. Uh, the Maharashtra long march from Nasik to Mumbai is a very important march that took place a few years ago, lifted the spirits of farmers. 
then in the middle of all this uh, the middle of the pandemic without any debate the modi government rammed through three laws into uh, the three bills into law now if people know what uberization is you know mm-hmm. where you're an uber driver and essentially you are like a you are captive to the app you know whatever the app tells you you have to do and you don't know who the other uber drivers are so you can never organize a union or anything and it's the app this voice from the sky that's essentially determining your destiny app says sorry no you know you are a badly behaved driver we're cutting you off if you get bad reviews and so on so all the customers whatever you say is it's an appalling uber driving is actually not unusual most working class activities around the world is being uberized um, right. you know call center workers uberized amazon delivery uberized uh, grocery store workers uberized you know more right. and more places we are seeing uberization well these bills these laws sought to uberize indian farmers and they knew it and they immediately said look we don't want to become essentially the slaves of these men whose names i mentioned earlier adani and ambani who had already begun to buy silos because they would capture the marketplace they were privatizing the marketplace oh, wow. for goods uh, so that's how the uberization would work is they would be apps to set prices and things like that well farmers didn't want anything so 250 million workers went on strike as you said 26 november 2020 This was the opening of the farmer struggle because Delhi is in North India mainly farmers from Uttar Pradesh Punjab Haryana Rajasthan to some extent and some came from Maharashtra to gather at the borders of Delhi and they stayed there for almost a year actually they stayed there for over a year now the modi government did everything attacked them physically attacked them ideologically said to them that you are anti national that you are khalistanis referring to a sectarian movement or secessionist movement from the 1980s attacked them now the thing is you got to remember that the british had started bringing in people from punjab and haryana into the military in large numbers that continued in independent india so when the government said oh you farmers are you know you are anti national well their children showed up at these protest sites in their military uniform saying anti national that's my dad you're talking about <laughs> anti national that's my mom you're talking about be careful what you say they threw their medals into fire and so on this oh, wow. really scared the government man i mean it really the government was like wow if this attitude enters into the military into the police force and so on we have a revolutionary situation so modi in his period in government as the prime minister has only twice backed down uh, mm. when in not only popular protest but protest from the opposition never accepted it only twice he's backed down once before was also because of a farmer protest and this time modi the week before the one year anniversary came on tv and said okay we are going to take the bill back but he didn't say we are not going to push this agenda he said because we actually introduced it in a bad way very clever <laughs> you got to follow his language you know so and also this year is coming up elections in uttar pradesh the biggest state in india 200 million people and in punjab and if the farmers protest had continued into the elections the bjp would have suffered a lot anyway it looks like the farmers protest might bear some political dividends for the opposition i'm not sure how much but some so that's it and let me tell you something i believe that this farmers protest in india hundreds of millions of farmers protesting and struggling and entire communities participating is the most important mass struggle that we have seen in this century so far yeah <clears throat> yeah i think there's a lot of lessons that organizers in in the states in the U- in in the uk just anywhere in the west i there's a lot of lessons that they can take from the 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 large amount of solidarity that that was shown in india uh and and that was part of the reason why i wanted to uh, i kept talking about it and it, you know and and then it became really difficult to find stories because they were cutting internet access for people and and the other thing i found kind of surprising was a lot of the people that were uh that were part of the strike the farmers that were part of the strikes were older these are these are not you know 20 somethings these are people 50 plus i thought that was incredible and and, and something to 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 take note of um you know because that's the other thing whenever it comes to 
to talking about folks on the left or talking about people that champion socialism, you know, these, these conservatives and these neoliberals always point out that it's young people and the older generation doesn't want to do anything with socialism and they don't want to do anything with, you know, organization or the unions or, or, or anything like that. I, I find that to be quite significant that most of these farmers were older. Well, know? the first thing to pay attention to is that they were fighting an existential fight that mm -hmm. their way of life was going to be destroyed by Uberization. So, I mean, it's not clear that they were fighting for a socialist future or for, sure. you know, a left future or anything. Theirs was a mass struggle. They just said, we refuse to be Uberized. Now, the consequence of that is, listen, you know, Praji, listen to me. If you don't want to be Uberized, you're going to have to advance to socialism. There's no <laughs> option, okay? But that was not where people were necessarily. <laughs> there were lots of people who were with red flags and with the All India Kisan Sabha, the Communist Union and so on. They were there. But there were also people with, you know, Mr. Taket, people with the yellow flags and so on, who had a farmerist consciousness. You know, they wanted to protect their way of life. Well, of course, we stand with them 100%, but also one, one would like to tell them, you know, that, you know, there's no other option. You know, frankly, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I can't think of another option. You know, we, we've got to like, and also because I fundamentally believe that in any society, uh, you have to subsidize agriculture. Mm. Um, you have to also subsidize agricultural agriculture, you, organic type of things. Why? Because it's not always profitable to do everything in life, pal. It's not. You know, you're a comedian, okay? You know, I believe that in a in a society, artists should be supported. You know, you shouldn't have to go out there and hustle to make a living. You know, I'll give an example. It's a silly example, but but it, it may make the point. Uh, one day I was driving somewhere and, and it was early in the morning. I was going to a meeting. And on the side of the road, there was a clown who had a big sign, which essentially said, I'm an asshole. I was twirling the <laughs> sign around, dressed like a clown, twirling it around. And, you know, I looked at him and said, what the hell? It's like 7.30 a.m. He must have started at 5, you know, put on. But he was there for commuters or whatever. I don't know what he was doing. There was no, he was not advertising anything. Obviously, he had a sign. And it was not a gag. It was not with a radio station. He was just there. So I asked the person I was with, what's this? He said, oh, this is just a funny fellow. You know, he's there once in a while, not every day. Okay. We were in this meeting, six, seven hour meeting. Sometime in the middle of the afternoon, I was ready to call it quits. And I just started laughing. People said, what's happening? I said, I was thinking of that bloody clown. You know, <laughs> what clown? I So I described it. Everybody laughed. It lifted our mood for the rest of the day. This yeah. guy improved our productivity. If you even just think of it in that <laughs> narrow capitalist sense, this guy, is, he doesn't know who I am. You know, I don't know who he is. We, we just passed, you know, a ship in the morning, right? We right, just passed. Right. And he made me happy. So why can't we have artists just make us happy in the world? You know, do paintings on the street. You're a comedian. Just walk down the street and tell jokes, man. I don't know what kind of bits you do as such, but... You know, I, I don't mean to demean your craft. No, no, you not at all. You need to be in a proscenium stage or whatever. But just support artists, support farmers, you know. Support by what? Support by a collective labor. Support by a collective social wealth. You know, we let's decide to put our social wealth to use, not to keep it in, you know, illicit tax havens and to have somebody have like champagne in their swimming pool. And, you know, I don't know what all they have, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, 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 Donald Trump used to eat hamburgers on gold, solid gold plate. <laughs> yeah, a solid gold <laughs> plate, he would have McDonald's. And the thing about the Donald Trump is, at least that's what one read in a biography of him. thing about Trump is he didn't, because he kept trying to lose weight, he wouldn't eat both buns. But he would eat two Big Macs. The so buns are the problem. Know anything okay. about any of these things. <laughs> Just that he ate that on a golden, solid gold plate. What the hell is that, you know? Instead, I would like that solid gold plate to be used to pay that guy with the sign for his annual salary. I mean, that yeah, solid yeah. gold plate is way more than that guy would want even, you know? And I don't even mean, you know, what's just. But he may say, look, I'll take that plate, but that's three years. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is covering me for three years. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I that's the thing with every time 
like the space race we saw last year. It's just these things are like, are you bored? Because I got some stuff you can work on. You know, it's these people have these phrases like greed is good. And oh, if you uh, this is another one of my favorites that I used to hear all the time. If you got time to lean, you got time to clean. And it's just busy work, right? It's it's work that doesn't really mean anything. But at the same time, if if you want something to do, there's stuff to fix. You know, like we we need more hospital beds. We you know, I, I would love if the gazebo down the street from my house was fixed up a little bit so that people can hang out there at night, maybe put a heater there for the, for the winter or something. You know, these are, these are things that these billionaires can do, but they're, they're so out of touch and so bored. They're like, what if I go to space and, and try to live on the moon? <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish, I wish, I, I wish that's the thing. I mean, space hotel, you started this by yeah, talking yeah. about the space hotel, you know, it's not even clear. Like, what are you hoteling from? You know, <laughs> Um, like, like, I mean, you know, generally when people go to a hotel, it's either that they are at work somewhere, they've got, you know, at a different place or they've gone yeah. to see a city tourists and so on, or, you know, their building caught on fire because the landlord didn't take care of the electricals. And, and there are various tangible reasons why people <laughs> go to a hotel. Now you're sending me up into space in a spacecraft, which is essentially a floating hotel, to disembark from a floating hotel onto another spacecraft, which is a floating hotel. I, I just, you know, who comes up with these thoughts? Like, why don't you just keep me in the first spacecraft, change the sign from spacecraft to hotel, so that you don't have to build something that sits up there and orbits the Earth as a hotel? You know, I understand the space station. The space station is different than a spacecraft. The space station was created up there to do scientific experiments to help us better understand the universe, better understand various compounds, medicines, and so on. They've done some pretty interesting scientific work up there. It's a big difference between the space station, which is a scientific outpost, just like many scientific outposts on the planet, and the space hotel. I just really literally don't get... You know, there are there. I watched a video, a YouTube video of Qatar Airlines Uber first class, oh, where man. there's essentially a hotel room on the plane. And, you know, I watched that and I thought, you know, it's hugely expensive to get. But I thought I would never want the plane to land. You know, I just want to keep <laughs> flying two or three times around the earth so I could just enjoy this room. So luxurious. OK, weird thing about that room. So every room has its own butler on the plane, okay? Oh my goodness. Every room has its own, or maybe there's one butler for three. I, I didn't follow it that closely, but there's a butler, you know? And yet, in every amazing looking room, there's a tiny refrigerator. And I thought, who's bringing groceries onto the plane? <laughs> like, I'm coming onto this like Uber first class with my own butler, and yet I'm going to have a refrigerator. Like, I fixated on that. I couldn't see the rest of the little yeah. promo video. I was just fixated thinking, who brings a refrigerator on, you know? And anyway, the point is, you're there, you know? You know? So, like, I don't understand how money yeah. works, you know? Like, yeah. this is, you know, this is like an eight-hour flight. And you're willing to pay $30,000, $40,000 for a ticket. Oof. For that eight-hour flight, you know? I mean, I know some people own aircrafts and it's way more expensive. Or they even charter planes. Way more expensive than $30,000 for a flight. But, you know, your family of four, you know, that's 120 put taxes in, 150 maybe with the limo ride to the airport, whatever. 150K just to take an eight-hour flight. Wow, man, that's... <laughs> Must be nice, but 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 right like, <laughs> to have so much money that you're just—that's what—that's what you're doing with. <laughs> and that's the people we intersect with. We don't intersect with the private planers and the charter planers. Right. These are just people we intersect with. These right. are the one fifty k for the flight. You know, like they'll die with us when the flight crashes. The <laughs> private plane people will be just flying right by, saying, "See ya." You know, easy. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> these are the people we just intersect with, and yet we see how grotesque it is. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I I have two more questions for you. Um, 
the the first one, you you brought this idea that you know the the farmers didn't go into the the strike thinking well i'm going to you know uh, push back against this government using a socialist tactic they were it was more about livelihood but like you mentioned if if they want to keep continuing to to push back against the this neoliberal government then you're going to have to lean more socialist right is is that the reason why socialism is demonized and condemned on a global scale by these people? Because these, even even these more conservative folks, these more traditionally conservative folks, once they realize what capitalism is actually doing to them, there doesn't seem any other option but to go towards socialism to, to kind of fix what capitalism has broken. Well, look, uh, as we speak, uh, a venerable liberal magazine in the United States has totally smeared me and called me a um, essentially a, a denier of genocide in China uh, and also suggested by implication that Which, I believe that the killing of Native Americans and Native Australians and so on is legitimate. Um, it's a total smear article. It, it just smelled to me like some kind of CIA dossier, if I'm yeah. honest with you. It's a mainstream liberal magazine, okay? And the journalist, when I wrote him and said, hey, listen, what's going on here? You know, it's weird. he was like, well, I have the transcript and the fact checkers checked it. And I mean, I, I just thought it was extraordinary because I don't want to get too much into it. But I'm just saying that in order to say that, look, I am not carrying any buckets for the country of China. There's 1.4 billion people. OK, they, they can handle whatever they take themselves. They don't need people like me talking for them or not for them or whatever. But the fact is that in the last two years, the Chinese have not only controlled COVID uh, at a rate that is incredible, you know, just a few thousand people dead, you know, uh, and I don't even know what the exact number is, but it's nothing compared to the US, which is going to be perhaps a million people, you know, it's 800,000 dead, yeah. uh, more than in the world, in the, the in World War II. Um, so, you know, one is they were able to control COVID. And secondly, they abolished absolute poverty. You know, 800 million people lifted out of poverty. These are extraordinary feats, you know, but these are threats. Um, these things themselves threaten the self-image of people in the West, of people in Brazil, India. The ruling elites are threatened by all this. They don't want this to be there. They would perhaps prefer that all the focus is on their storyline regarding Xinjiang and genocide and this and, and that and so on. They don't want to focus on the fact that absolute poverty is eradicated or that COVID has been held down. You know, look, what's a human rights violation? Um, I look closely at the World Health Organization Constitution from 1946. It says that it's a human right to attain the highest attainable stat standard of health. That's a direct quote. It's a human right. Um, that's there in the International Declaration of Human Rights. That's there in the Alma-Ata Declaration, 1978. That's there in the Economic and Social Commission Council's uh, mandate in 2000. United States is a signatory to these, these things. That means the U.S. government has violated the human rights of the U.S. people. That's a genocidal, you know, it, it's an incredible 800,000 people dead, you know, um, and yet... We don't hold these countries, you know, uh, in the contempt that they should be held, the ruling classes. Over a million Iraqis killed in the U.S. war of aggression, mm -hmm. illegal war against Iraq. That somehow is acceptable, you know. And focus of attention will be Xinjiang or focus of attention will be Darfur. Horrible things may be happening in those places, but let's not take our eyes off the fact that the people who keep saying, look over there, look over there are ignoring what they have done to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Libya, to Syria. I mean, what? To Honduras? All of a sudden, America cares about Muslims, right? <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? You know, you're right now running an actual concentration camp in Guantanamo. Now, 20 years old, the week we are speaking, 20 years old. You're running an actual concentration camp and you're accusing other people of having concentration camps. And U.S. liberals? Marching alongside, I was struck in right. this liberal magazine that the foreign affairs advisor to Bernie Sanders essentially calls for sanctions against China. I thought, seriously, you're Bernie Sanders foreign <laughs> policy guy. What what's going on here? 
this is lazy thinking yeah and you know so when when you you raise the question of the farmers and socialism and are they afraid i think they are very afraid i mean they are so afraid that they have to go after people like me who are what i mean what am i i'm i'm a person who has been a journalist i was a professor at a co- small college and now i run a research institute i'm still a journalist you know i mean yes my newsletter gets read by a million people but that's 1 million out of 7.9 billion in the world right. you know what am i i'm a nothing yet you are so threatened by me that you have to go out there and call me a genocidaire that's shameful to 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 something they have no proof for that that people have debunked countless times over and over again and nobody corroborated the guy that wrote the story i mean it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous you you can say that what's happening to the uyghur population isn't great and we would love that if if china would treat them better and and we hope that xi jinping has a plan to fix this but to claim that it's a genocide when when it's not when the us has such an atrocious health system health, you know healthcare system that 800 million people are dead it is just it's laughable it's laughable when when things like this happen and I, and i'm really sorry to hear that the you know i i i have friends that get get smeared like lee camp got smeared three times within the span of like you know 18 months uh, and and they're all absurd and it always i don't know if it makes me laugh or it makes me sad it might be a little bit of both but the people that believe these articles that they read and they don't do anything to confirm whether you know this guy is right or this guy is wrong it's it's uh, i you know it i could go on it my friend um i am told although i have not got access to the archives of this particular magazine but i am told that this magazine uh, supported the use of atomic bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki <laughs> it's a liberal magazine Vener- venerable liberal magazine and i am also told again i am not able to confirm this but i am told that it has not apologized for supporting the use of massive weapons against the people of japan and so i mean it to me is a mark of some curiosity that rather than spend yeah. time looking in the mirror they would prefer to you know throw their um, their fecal matter <laughs> at people who are out there trying to understand the world and explain the world as best as they can you know nobody is saying you and i are clairvoyant you know there's a lot of things we miss a lot of mistakes we made i mean i've written things in the past that i regret because i thought i was saying something that is correct right and then i realized on reflection it's not correct i wrote a story years ago um in the middle of a confrontation in west bengal where i wrote things that i regret now uh, i thought they were correct at the time i talked to various people seemed that that was the nature of the facts it turns out i was wrong on the facts and you know i've said so many times uh, but yet it doesn't matter um, mm. because you know they pretend that we think that we are clairvoyant N- not at all and and not um, you know no abrahamic standpoint don't stand on a mountain and see everything you know <laughs> we're seeing just little bits and pieces of reality by the way i have a great my daughter is a comedian i have a great respect for the profession because i understand comedians don't generally think they stand on the mountain top they make they observe things the way they see it they make they show the ridiculousness of reality yeah that's a form of critique you know i mean i'm not talking about seinfeld which is co- comedy about nothing is really just nothing <laughs> um you know but if you're able to you know my daughter has told me for years she said you know i i i'm you got to cultivate punching up not punching yeah. down yes and you know punching down is just absurd and easy and 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 it, it ends up you just re- reinforce racism and and sexism and so on but punching down is hard because sorry punching up is hard because it's hard to make people laugh you know it's Absolutely. too close to our life that's that's pretty much i mean i i talk about this sort of stuff i i like ideas and uh <clears throat> philosophy and history so I, i i incorporate that into my act with personal stories but but that is the, the, but that's that you're right it, it punching up is really hard and and when you when you are trying to punch up and when you are using comedy as a a a, a way to speak truth to power or I don't I don't think I go into specifically think I'm going to change people's minds I'm just excited to talk about you know this new thing I discovered like like the farmer strike to 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 say like hey they won they won they they beat a pretty big 
neo neoliberal neoconservative government. That's a big deal. That's exciting. And then to talk about it, and who who is the 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 victim of my joke? It's not going to be the farmers. It's going to be people like you know Amit Shah, who's <laughs> coming out making outrageous claims that. These are Sikh separatists and conflating them with with Muslims, which are two very different, very different religions. It, it, that's the target of the joke because it's so absurd. And this guy has all the power. These these farmers don't. These farmers are at the behest of his power, but they flipped it. They flipped the table. And I think that's pretty powerful. I'm you going know, to tell you a funny story about yeah. this. Uh, in 1992, when there was really terrible uh, tension in India around um, the rise of the BJP, the party of yeah. Mr. Modi and Amit Shah and so on. I was at a uh, birthday party of uh, my granduncle, who was a man of the right. And um, at his birthday party was a leader of the BJP, who was the mentor of some of these people, Modi and Amit Shah and so on. His name was Arun Jaitley. Later, he was the home minister of India. Um, Mr. Jaitley you know, knew, knew me. Uh, and so he asked me to step out with him onto the terrace um, where there was an open veranda. And I was there with him and he said to me, listen, I've been reading the things you're writing. I was at the time writing in some Indian newspapers. And he said, you know, it's OK if you're critical of us. We can tolerate that. But he said, if you make fun of us, be careful. And I found that really chilling. And I've thought about it a lot through my life. Um, you know, 20, I guess now. Is that 20, 30 years later? 30 years, yeah. 30 years later, I, I think about that a lot. I, I think about that a lot because I know the people in power, especially these kind of people, they, they can tolerate some amount of criticism, but they don't like to be made fun of. And when you punch up, uh, especially as a comedian, as a writer, as somebody who you know, is able to find a way, a way to get under their skin, they are very dangerous people. Yeah. And I'm afraid of them sometimes. You know, I was afraid of Arun Jaitley after that comment. Um, I'm afraid of Amit Shah. You know, he's a scary man. Um, I'm actually afraid of a lot of people in the U.S. government. I, I fear them because I think they are dangerous people. Um, I was doing a story on the killing of an American ambassador in Kabul in 1979. His name was um, Adolf uh, Dubbs. And I'd been going around the world collecting information. I was in England, talked to people in British intelligence, talked to former CIA agents and so on. I got a call from a guy who was operations head in that region in the 1970s when Dubs was killed. And he asked me to meet him in Massachusetts. At the time, I was in, I think, Beirut. And I wrote him back and I said, I'll be happy to meet you. I went to meet him. And at the uh, coffee shop in a hotel in Cambridge, Mass, he, he's now dead. He's a very, he was a very senior member of the CIA. He says to me at that meeting, he says, you know, I'll tell you lots of stories. I'll tell you things you don't even know to ask me about. But he says, I don't think you should look into the story of Dubs. He said, be careful. These are dangerous people. You know, one man says to me, you know, don't make fun of us because we draw the line there. Be careful. Another one says, don't look at that story. Be careful. These are dangerous people. You know, there's a cost yeah. to be paid. It's not a game. You know, the, the things that we are doing, what, what you are doing, it's not a game. We're up right. against some very dangerous people. And, and I'm not saying this as some kind of crazy conspiracy theorist. I'm just telling you two actual stories. One man was became the home minister of India. The other was director of operations CIA in West Asia, also uh, station chief in Paris and so on. Very senior member of the CIA. Be careful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is. They, they are scary people, uh, especially when you, I, I mean, I, I remember when I was in India a couple of years ago and I met some comics and went to an open mic to perform. Uh, and there was a comic that talked about making fun of a uh, the just the BJP, not even a particular candidate. And uh, somebody from uh, from the party was there, and you know, held high enough rank that he called the cops because he was making fun of the party, and he got thrown in jail overnight until he apologized the following day. And his dad had to come get him out of prison, you know. And I I hear those stories, <clears throat> and then to me, it's comical whenever comics 
complain because I hear that story and then I hear comics in the United States complain and say, oh, I can't say this joke because now it's considered racist. It's like, oh, really? Go ahead and try to make fun of the BJP in India and see what happens. Like, <laughs> you know, what you're, you know, it's, a, it, I, I don't, I don't mean to sound condescending, but to me, it's like, oh, you can't tell your joke about black people that you used to tell in the eighties anymore because everybody figured out that it's, it's racist now. That that's great. Are you getting thrown in prison now? Because I don't think you are. You, you know, this is like, this is this is like uh, cotton candy problems compared to this sort of stuff. But I but I I think going up against that is is important because to to me is we got to flip that script. They need to be more afraid of us than we are of them. And I think we're approaching that point uh, because because we're seeing politicians and. And we're seeing leaders that that are, you know, even large companies like John Deere and Kellogg that are now going to have to listen to what the workers have to say and what they're demanding. Uh, so I see that as a as a huge positive, and I'm 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 crossing my fingers to see more of that in 2022. I mean, we we can only wish. And yeah. <laughs> Vijay, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me. This was this was absolutely wonderful, and I'm a huge huge fan of your work. Uh, where can people find out uh, more about what you're working on and and find all the all the writings that you do? Well, they should go to thetricontinental.org. That's the institute I uh, lead. I have a, a couple of books coming out this year that people might be interested in. One is uh, a long conversation with Frank Barat called "Struggle Is What Makes Us Human." That'll come out from Haymarket. And then there's a book I wrote with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, uh, which will come out from the new press. And that's a book about U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya. And it's subtitled The Fragilities of U.S. Power. And that that will be out from the new press.